0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss. Hello, welcome to Start Your Week with the Bunker. Listeners with kids, prepare to enjoy your last week of homeschooling for now. Perhaps you can let them bring in games and wear their own clothes on Friday and make a special day of it. I'm Andrew Harrison, and with me to take us through the next seven days is Arthur Snell, former diplomat, ex-head of the UK Prevent Programme and International Man of Mystery. Hello, Arthur. You are joining us from your mobile studio,
1: aka your car, aren't you? That's right. Uh, Just trying to mix things up a bit. Why are you in your car on top of a hill? Well, uh, it it relates to uh, animals and living in the countryside, and I had to pop out, and I didn't manage to pop back in time. So I thought I'd just park up on a foggy hillside. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I think the COVID police say, what are you doing here, sir? Well, I'm actually podcasting officer. Of course you are. Of course yes, you are.
1: exactly. A likely story. A
0: likely story, sir. Please come with me. Anyway, right. This week, obviously, the budget is this week's big event. Rishi Sunak's under pressure to find the, an extra 43 billion pounds to plug a hole in the UK's finances after the pandemic. We've been told rises in corporation tax are coming. Meanwhile, the Treasury Committee is saying it's not time to put up taxes. And a group of Red Wall Tories are calling for a cut in business rates to protect small businesses. What is going to happen, do you think, Arthur? I mean, predicting what's going to be in a budget is always a bit of a fool's errand. But how do you think it's going to play out this week?
1: Well, I guess the big question, which has been sort of on everyone's lips for a few weeks, is does Rishi Sunak try to kind of make back the money now, the huge sums that Britain has spent on the pandemic, or does he go pretty soft, keep the money flowing to the businesses and sort of try to make it up later? The challenge that he's got is that at the last election, the Tories promised that there were going to be no tax rises to income tax, national insurance and VAT. So it doesn't leave him much room for manoeuvre of course, he could argue, well, these are unique crisis circumstances and all bets are off, but I don't think he's going to do that. So he's basically got a few levers he can pull in terms of kind of stealth taxes, slightly obscure ones that people don't notice when he's giving a speech and they only figure it out a couple of days later. And then the other big one is corporation tax. And it does look likely that there'll be some kind of announcement to bump up the corporation tax. The challenge with that, of course, is that corporation tax rises are felt by the owners of small businesses, and of the small business owner is perhaps your archetypal Tory voter. So whilst someone who set up a hedge fund registered in the Cayman Islands, such as Rishi Sunak, is not going to be affected by corporation <laughs> tax rises, the sort of person who, who runs a small or medium business, uh, maybe in the south of England, which is your kind of Tory heartland voter will be affected. So it, it's a tricky tightrope that he's trying to balance. And there
0: has been talk about uh, further taxes on wealth as well. Capital gains tax, inheritance tax. These are kind of taboos for the Conservative Party, which is may, makes uh, routine commitments not to raise taxes as, as part of a, of its election platform there is talk though that wealthier older people will have to start to pay some of this uh, this bill for the uh, for the pandemic and obviously we can debate what the nature of that bill is but Ken clark last week was raising the idea that older people who continue to work after state pension age should should pay national insurance like all the rest of us do do you think those that, that some of those tory taboos are going to get tested
1: i think they're going to get stretched but maybe not fully tested on this occasion, I, I I think that there's been a sort of rearguard lobbying action, particularly by that new breed of of so-called red wall Tory MPs, where, in general, you know their voters are not as well off as your sort of classic Tory voter down in the southeast. The basic difficulty is is twofold. One is that the Tory party now represents two rather different sort of slices of the electorate. So the the sort of the long term middle class, as, as mentioned in the southeast, who possibly, you know, might be able to afford to pay a bit more tax, perhaps wealthy pensioners, people like that. But then you've also got the, the new so-called Red Wall Tories. These are the, the more kind of uh, culture based Tory voters, Brexit supporters up in the north of England. And they are really not well suited, particularly in the light of the pandemic. To whether a, a a heavier burden of the tax, or well, they certainly don't feel they are, and they and I don't think they've been sort of sold that as as a possibility by their political masters. So so you know, Sunak has got undoubtedly a very tough choice ahead of him, and and he's still we should note he's still promising to keep um, funding small businesses, particularly the sort of high street, the the restaurants, and and the other things that have basically. Are just being kept on on life support at the moment he's promising to keep that life support going so the huge sums of money going out of the door are still going to go out of the door for for a few months to come how do you think it's going to
0: shake out politically for him because the sunshine sunak uh outshining the prime minister thing uh you know munificent beneficence and launching furloughs and so forth has i mean it, it, his political profile sunak has, has absolutely rocketed since this time last year and it's never a good idea for a Chancellor to outshine a Prime Minister. How do you think it's, that is likely to shake out?
1: That's a very interesting question, because I think part of the sunshine Sunak is is in a weird way. It's against his own instinct. So I, I made a slightly snarky reference to uh, Sunak's Cayman Islands hedge fund. But it, it's not incorrect to say that he's someone whose ideological instincts are in big global sort of corporate finance, very mobile money markets. And and he's somebody who is not naturally comfortable at all with a kind of big spending central government propping up businesses. But the pandemic has upended all of the the kind of norms of political calculation. So I think he's developed a brand. And I think he, he must be acutely aware that he is one of the very few really popular Tory politicians at the moment. And I don't think he's going to let that go. I think politically, this budget will feel like a relatively good times budget. And there'll be various sort of words about we can't carry on doing this forever. But we probably are going to carry on doing it for a little while. And I, I think that's where so, so it's sort of sunshine, but it's towards the end of the day, we can see the sun setting, I, I feel that's sort of where it's going to where it's going to be.
0: There does seem to be a weird kind of fight brewing between old school spending phobics in the Tory party and the new Tory big spenders like Boris Johnson. You know, the government is now dominated by the kind of people that would have given Margaret Thatcher conniptions spending, not just to deal with the pandemic, but the, you know, the levelling up agenda, which pre-exists the pandemic, is anathema to those old school Tories, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. And, and isn't it weird? Because Margaret Thatcher is the divinity which they all worship, but both on their approach to the EU leaving a single market and their approach to public spending, they're a very long way from from Margaret Thatcher's own ideology. And And I think one thing is undoubtedly the case is that the success of the vaccination programme means that there's a reasonable probability that the British economy will start to really take off later this year. So whilst it would be easy to say, well, all this public spending is kind of economically illiterate, they don't want to take the hard choices, there is a good chance that the the British economy is going to be humming along, not because of any economic brilliance on the part of the government, but simply because you've had all this pent up demand people haven't been able to do all kinds of things whether it's go on holiday or go to shops or go to cinemas or all kinds of other stuff and actually one is very cautious to say this it does seem as though by sort of june july actually life will be pretty much normal again and so that is going to have a huge impact economically
0: Keir Starmer's gonna to have to react to this on the fly, as all opposition leaders always do. He's said it's too early for tax increases of any kind. Do you think that the budget could be the the restart button that Starmer's been been looking for?
1: I'm not sure that it would be. I don't think that it is Starmer's sort of natural uh, you know, it it it's his kind of it's it's his best game is is reacting on the fly in a kind of witty yet slightly cutting way that will will give us sound bites to hear for the rest of the week and all the rest of it i'm sure what is he's, he's going to be listening intently for the the stealth tax rise that he can then draw attention to and try to put across to the british people that you know there isn't something for nothing that the tories have pushed up corporation tax thereby hitting the small business owner or they've pushed up capital gains tax, or some other, you know, stealth tax rise, which which obviously we, we don't yet know the shape of. I think in real terms, you know, Starmer's well aware of the fact that the big message of the budget, which I think is going to come across as being, yes, we need to put up taxes, but most of that's going to happen later. And for the moment, Uh, we're going to continue to support businesses. He can't disagree with that. So uh, unless he's got a very strong message about something very different that Labour would do, I think it's quite a tough message for him to deliver.
0: Elsewhere on coronavirus, we're just hearing about serious concern over a case of the P1 Brazilian variant of COVID-19. Six cases in Britain have been identified, three on flights to Aberdeen from Brazil via Paris and London, and one of them is currently untraceable. This is pandemic movie-type stuff. Labour has described it as down to a lack of a comprehensive border system. So do we expect this one to dominate the week ahead?
1: I think it might do. It's, It's hard to know how much sort of room there is on the news agenda with with the budget happening. But yes, I think it does, because it does seem to point to this weakness in the government's approach of saying, well, we're going to have quarantine, but there's going to be huge gaping holes in the quarantine system that any person could very easily figure out if they want to come to this country from, from for example, Brazil. And ultimately, if you look at countries that have successfully managed a really really strict border regime and got their cases down to minimal levels I'm talking about countries such as Australia and New Zealand but actually closer to home here in in the British Isles the Isle of Man has also managed that the way they've done it is by saying you can't come in or out from anywhere unless you've had very strict tests and you and you go through a really really strict quarantine a quarantine quarantine which means that all the workers in the hotels themselves are being tested. And, you know, it, it feels a lot more uh, serious than, than the one that's being implemented here.
0: Mm. Uh, vaccine passports to allow people to travel or to attend large events look like they're going to become uh, more contentious this week. More than 200,000 people have signed a petition against them saying they could be used to restrict the rights of people who've refused a vaccine. And that means this is an official parliament's petition, so Parliament may have to debate it. Is there more to this than just, you know, generic Covid scepticism and anti-vaxxing and, re- and that kind of thing?
1: It's a difficult one, because on the one hand, I can feel the sort of civil liberties question here, which is that, you know, there will be some people who for, you know, fairly good reasons may not have gone for a vaccine, and others who may not have gone for a vaccine for very bad reasons. But it, it becomes one of these barriers to entry, which, you know, separates out different parts of the population. And I think in almost any other circumstance, I would have a little bit of sympathy. But I just feel, given the uh, the seriousness of this whole pandemic, the devastating impact it's had on every aspect of. Ordinary life. It does seem to me that it's picking a really rather unnecessary fight, and I just feel that I, I just wish people would choose a different battle.
0: It's immensely complex, though, isn't it? Because Nick Cohen, friend of the show and semi-regular, was writing over the weekend about how this will, uh, you know, vaccine acceptance uh, or lack thereof will fall as these things always do on you know deprived communities. and We've got vaccine hesitancy amongst BAME communities and poorer people this is surely, you know, de facto going to create, you know, the people who are are less likely to have the vaccine passports are going to be from excluded communities. So it's not just about personal liberty. It's about erecting further barriers to people who are already excluded from society.
1: I think that's a fair point, but I think that the remedy for that is for the government to work a lot harder and, you know, to be fair to them, they've done a bit, but they need to work a lot harder in the outreach to those communities. Um, and and you know the the education and communication aspects of it, so that you do reverse those kind of low take up rates that appear to exist in in particular underserved communities. It seems to me that if if you can't find a way to effectively facilitate the uh, the activities of the vast majority of the population that has taken the vaccine then actually the upside of having a really successful vaccine programme is it's self-dented. So you, 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 you've got to sort of juggle those two, the, 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 those two requirements.
0: Meanwhile, it is the last week of homeschooling, as I, as I mentioned earlier. Kids go back on Monday. Gin, gin sales will rocket on Monday. The testing pupils is a huge part of this, though, and uh, secondary school pupils are going to be expected to get home tests twice a week. This is going to be easy, isn't it? Teenagers are famously cooperative. And consistent in their approach to these things.
1: Ah, uh, yeah. Now, you're, you're talking to the, the father of a teenage daughter. Um, and also, as I think I've mentioned in the past, you know, my, my wife, as it happens, works in public health. I think there's, there's quite a lot of concern in the public health community about this. Um, these are tests which you administer by shoving something a long way up the nostril of a grumpy teenager. And they're tests that are not particularly effective quite often show a false negative so i i think you know any realistic assessment of what a harassed parent who has no medical training and is expected to administer this really quite sort of uncomfortable test on their child we're going to have a, a huge number of of dodgy results And I'm sure there'll be some parents, not many, I'm sure, but there'll be some probably who just don't administer the test, but send in the results anyway, because it's all too difficult. It's better to do some testing than to do no testing. I accept that. But I think that this is a a very problematic uh, rollout that we're about to witness.
0: And there's no priority vaccination for teachers in the new uh, second uh, phase of, of vaccination. Um, the Guardian has quoted one teacher as saying there's an impending sense of doom about the return. How do you expect this one to play out this week as we get closer to uh, kids going back?
1: Yeah, it. It. I do feel worried about this because it, young people who are asymptomatic, spreading the illness between them and then passing it back to the adults that they live with or interact with in their home lives, you know, that is undoubtedly one of the ways in which this illness has continued to spread throughout the population. The urge to get kids back into school, uh, of course, is one of the key elements. You know, the, the, the challenges of homeschooling, the stress, the fact that loads of people can't homeschool uh, properly. You know, they may not have access to reliable internet or, or, or IT or all. Or, you know, there are so many barriers, there are so many problems with homeschooling. But the the fact that we have not decided to uh vaccinate teachers, and again, the arguments there, you can understand, you know, the the, the vaccination uh council, which is full of extremely uh, eminent scientists, you can understand the arguments that they've made. But ultimately you do have this problem now that you've got a huge part of the population that is now mixing freely. Let, let you know, I know schools will do their best to to uh, maintain some level of social distancing, but in real life, that isn't going to happen. So I, I think that we are going to see, you know, a, a lot more of the virus being allowed to circulate. the The only upside is of is that you do now have a significant proportion of the vulnerable population are now vaccinated. So hopefully, that will just reduce the the impact of it.
0: Just a few things to cover before we wrap up. Um, obviously, we're always very careful about this, uh, but the political situation in Scotland has become a bit of a spectator sport. The surgeon Stammon Vendetta is amazing, and Stammon's claim in his former deputy ran a deliberate, prolonged, malicious, and concerted effort to trash his reputation, even to the extent of having me imprisoned. So, Arthur, without English-splaining, because we cannot <laughs> claim any expertise here, although it is astonishing to look at, have, have you been following this? Is it like... Can we say anything about what we think might happen on this one?
1: Yeah, well, I've been trying to follow it. And at one level, it looks like a relatively simple story of a very powerful political movement having a huge kind of power struggle carry on inside that movement, which is, you know, Salmon versus Sturgeon. The complexities of it, the the, the allegations, because, of course, this does not relate to the court case on which Alex Salmon was cleared of all charges of of, of allegations against him. But it does relate to a subsequent inquiry on similar issues, albeit a a separate separate, uh, inquiry. Uh, It looks very complicated. I think, you know, there's a risk of people south of the border, particularly those who regard themselves as unionists, of slightly rubbing their hands and saying, oh, well, this gets us off the hook. The SNP is going to screw itself up, and therefore we don't need to worry about Scottish independence for another year or so. It's not clear to me that that's the case. Um, Yes, this is a very unedifying spectacle, but that doesn't seem to change the strong likelihood that in the Holyrood elections, the SNP will do very well and probably win a majority And we're still faced with the same problem from the outset, which is that this is a very powerful movement that seeks independence for Scotland. And nobody who is on the other side of the argument has yet apparently come up with a sort of successful counter argument to uh, persuade the Scottish people that uh, that they don't want to back the SNP.
0: Well, I've actual Scots who actually know what they're talking about in some depth on the show soon. We promise that. So That it sounds it, like
1: a really good idea and I don't need to feel so uncomfortable.
0: <laughs> a couple of things on the Arthur Snell foreign desk here. The killings in Myanmar are worsening. Um, what do we need to know about that?
1: Yeah, so the obviously there was the military coup in Myanmar and then a very widespread and very kind of impressive wave of protests which appeared to have um, real kind of energy to it. If I'm honest, and, and I don't want to sound at all kind of ghoulish about this, I was sort of surprised that the, the, the crackdown hadn't already happened. The military junta in Myanmar has a very clear track record of being willing to be extremely draconian when they want to. And, and I felt slightly that we were just sort of counting down the days until they said, right, we've had enough now we we're, we're going to spill some blood and that will you know that will change the calculus well tragically that appears to have happened and there have been killings of protesters in one or two different cities now what we don't know is how how what impact this will have will will uh, these heroic uh, protesters for democracy continue their struggle or or will will they be sort of cowed i i don't know yet it is something that we are watching unfold before our eyes but the other development which is important is that the elected, uh, effectively, sort of prime minister, Aung San Suu Kyi, who, who obviously comes from the democratic movement, albeit there have been controversies around her stance on the rights of ethnic minorities in Myanmar, but she is due to appear in court today on charges, uh, which, which ludicrous as they sound, she's charged with illegally owning walkie-talkies, um, but that was what the military junta got her for, when they arrested her at the start of the coup.
0: Blimey. And just finally, um, the emergence of the Khashoggi report. What did it conclude? How will that play out? What do we need to know on that one?
1: Yeah, so this um, this is obviously the, uh, the Saudi journalist, uh, Jamal Khashoggi, who uh, was lured into the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, Turkey, where he was murdered, dismembered, and ultimately fed into an incinerator. A, 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 you know, a, a totally... Disgraceful and awful uh, story. At the time, uh, various intelligence agencies, notably Turkey and the CIA, had quite a lot of information about what had actually happened, including, it is alleged, an audio of the entire ghastly event unfolding. Out of that, a US um, intelligence report was prepared, and this was a classified report, and this is obviously during the Trump presidency which sort of explained what had happened and attributed responsibility to the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, uh, widely known as MBS. This report was classified under the Trump administration because, of course, Trump uh, got on very well with MBS and and his his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, was also very close with MBS. And there are suggestions that there may even have been Uh, you know, some kind of sort of economic relationship there. Trump, at the time of the murder, very kind of, um, uh, I think, uh, disingenuously speculated that there could be any number of things that have happened, albeit, you know, if you're in the Saudi consulate and you're murdered, that presumably is the fault of the Saudi state. Uh, So the report was hushed up. But um, the incoming Biden administration had made an undertaking to declassify this report, and they they delivered on that. They waited until President Biden has had his first phone call with the King of Saudi Arabia, King Salman, who is, of course, the father of MBS. Um, and and so the report emerged just at the end of last week. It's it's there on the internet for anyone who wants to read it. It's not a particularly inform informative report. It's only a few pages long, but it lays out the the central point, which you could argue, is pretty obvious from the start, which is that if for this to have happened, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, who controls almost everything that happens in Saudi Arabia, had to be on board with the outcome. So basically, it it sort of lays to rest any idea that that somehow he he was not responsible for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Now, this will increase pressure on the US government to introduce more sanctions on Saudi Arabia and possibly even sanctions on MBS himself. I think the Americans will want to try to resist that and, and sort of try to put this behind them. For all the considerable distaste that you can imagine that exists in in response to this awful killing, as has been the case for many years, um, Western countries need to be able to work with Saudi Arabia for a range of reasons in the Middle East, including the ongoing struggle uh, with Iran, including uh, trying to bring an end to the civil war in Yemen, and so I think the Americans are are, are going to be uh, trying to say, well, we we have we've laid out clearly what we believe happened, and we regard that is you know that that, that is now the end of the matter. But I I think those who are campaigning um, to see justice for Khashoggi, and on the sort of wider issues of Saudi Arabia's activities in Yemen, this will just be yet another uh, sort of piece of evidence which will be used to to pursue that case.
0: Arthur Snell, thank you for joining us from a layby where you're waiting to meet your contact from Carla and um, or whatever. Um, <laughs> you're a secret dead drop. Uh, Arthur, thanks for uh, getting up so early and uh, finding a hot spot on a hill to talk to us listeners thanks for listening we'll be back tomorrow with the panel show and a major guest alan rusbridger former editor of the guardian will be here to talk about his new book news and how to use it and whether we can drag ourselves into a post post truth era and also on top of that we've got exciting news for our patreon backers but you'll have to listen to find out what it is so subscribe on your favorite app and you won't miss it arthur thanks for joining us it's a pleasure listeners thanks for listening we'll see you tomorrow
1: The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofrenievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.